Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Simon speaks to Max Hastings, the celebrated historian well known for his books on the Second World War. So it was a, a wide-ranging, really interesting interview that I did with him in London. We covered a lot of ground from his career as a young journalist in the late 60s and 1970s through to um, covering the Falklands War in the 80s, editing The Telegraph and his hugely uh, popular Second World War books. He spoke very frankly about money uh, and all sorts of other aspects of the writing life. So I'm here with Max Hastings in London. Max, could you start off by telling me a little bit about the origin of your interest both in writing and in military affairs and whether there was crossover between those two areas? I suppose I grew up um, in a household where both my parents were writers, but my father was also an adventurer who had um, been lucky enough to, like quite a lot of journalists, to get media organisations, including the BBC and various newspapers, to pay him quite handsomely to go and do extraordinary things in all sorts of parts of the world. And I thought this sounded like a great life. And also, I grew up in a post-World War II world in which, very naively and stupidly, um, quite a lot of the men in our family had actually managed to enjoy the war. They'd had very privileged lives in the war. This phrase, a good war. And um, they found it very exciting and they'd had fun. And I grew up thinking that wars were fun. And for a brief period, I thought of becoming a soldier. But after I did a brief and very inglorious stint uh, with the parachute regiment in Cyprus, I realised that uh, I wasn't cut out to be a soldier. And you've written about that? Uh, Absolutely. Well, Well, um, I always thought that if I didn't write about what a fool I'd made myself in Cyprus, somebody else would. So I wrote a kind of clean about that. Um, For those who aren't familiar with that, could you talk a little bit about Well, um, when when we were all 17, we thought parachuting and getting the Red Beret and wings sounded tremendously glamorous. Mm. So um, after I left school in my gap year, um, I did basic training and uh, the parachute course. And then the commanding officer won the regular parachute battalion and said, would I like to come to Cyprus uh, with his battalion? which I stupidly accepted, and I was 17 and a half, and um, I simply couldn't hack it. But I found uh, um, um, all that on a pretty hard, tough exercise in pretty tough conditions that um, I found I couldn't stay awake when everybody else was supposed to be staying awake, and I, could, um, I couldn't lead a section, um, I couldn't lead men in those circumstances. In fact, I cut a pretty pathetic figure as an officer cadet. And by the end of the um, of my time in uh, in Cyprus, that um, the commanding officer of the battalion said he thought that on the whole it'd probably be better if I resigned and took up my scholarship at Oxford because okay. he didn't think I had a great future in the parachute regiment. And I was very grateful for having discovered um, at the age of seventeen, uh, without it having sort of cost me anything, yeah. that I wasn't cut out for that. Um, but did I you, did you feel that the, the Second World War in particular kind of loomed over your generation? This came oh, yeah. when we spoke to Anthony oh, Beaver, yeah. and I think also, I mean, Lucarius is significantly older than you, but in his writing as well, he talks about, for him, he was born about 1930, for someone of that generation, what the war and what people had done in the war had a huge dimension. My parents' generation, in all countries that have been involved in the war judged everybody tremendously by whether they had a good or bad war. Mm. If you'd had a quote, good war, then if you bounced checks or beat up your wife, you were still going to be forgiven because you've been a brilliant fighter pilot and so on. 
And one what of the defined things, a good war? Was it bravery or decoration? Or mostly bravery, I think. Um, but we grew up with a completely false picture. I mean, I think most of my career as a writer about military affairs has been a very long growing up process yeah. of learning that war is not a bundle of laughs, that war is a ghastly human experience. Um, um, I've spent really my whole career as a writer just de-glamorizing my, my whole idea about, I'm not a pacifist, I believe that nations have sometimes got to take up arms, but I'm very, very wary about when you go to war or when you don't, um, because one knows so much about how awful it is. There's a very good phrase, there was a Norwegian resistance hero in World War II called Knut Hansen, and he wrote in... He's involved in the heavy water plant episode. Exactly so. Yeah. You, you, you are very well informed, um, and you're absolutely right. But he wrote in his memoir, he said, although wars bring adventures that stir the heart, the true nature of war um, is composed of innumerable personal hardships and sacrifices, entirely evil and not redeemed by glory. Mm. And that's really what I've spent my whole writing career coming to understand. So those members of your family who, who claimed they'd had a good war and enjoyed yeah. it, were they, were they relating their experiences through a filter for you? Or? Yeah, they were. Um, they'd, my great-uncle, whom I grew up idolising, he won a military cross in the First World War. He was one of the people who managed to enjoy the First World War. He was surprisingly... Um, he, was, he, he wasn't stupid, as many heroes are. He was... Um, um, intelligent, sensitive man who wrote not bad poetry, um, but um, he'd managed. To, he was a very tough man, and uh, he managed to enjoy the First World War. He managed to enjoy the Second World War. The Second World War, he's military correspondent of the BBC, and he made his first parachute jump at the age of sixty. Okay. And he'd found both World Wars. In fact, once they declared a close season on Germans, he became far less interested in life. Yeah. Um, I suppose if you look at someone like Evelyn Ward's writing, his attitude, well, both to the army and to the war, is acutely schizophrenic, right? He can have a... There's perhaps no, no funnier writer on the British army than Evelyn Ward, but also, you know, he idolises an institution. I suppose idolises the war going Well, on. people... We grew up with an intensely nationalistic view of the war that uh, I was brought up to believe that the British had won the war with the Americans supplying... Um, the chewing gum and some weapons um, and some money and the, the um, Russians, the Russians out there doing God knows what um, and again what I've been trying to do in all my writing in the last 19 years is to shift that perspective in my writing I don't think uh, in, about war I don't think one's produced great secrets that nobody knew what I'm trying to do is shift perspectives all the time to make people see that Although what we did under Winston Churchill's inspired leadership in 1940-41 was very remarkable, mm. that in the end we were still losers until the Americans and the Russians came in. And in the end, by the end of the Second World War, we were completely marginal players. Yeah. I'm, I'm also interested in that, um, you know, although you weren't a soldier, you saw a lot of combat as a journalist. Mm. And I've, in, in the work I've done with my book, um, I've, I've had a sort of seeing that world of, of military history and military academia and so forth. It often seems to me, and perhaps there's an element of this in my own, in myself, of people who haven't been, been or seen fighting, trying to come to terms or to expunge that. Do you think that's a valid point? And does that relate to your... It relates. I mean, I was very friendly with John Keegan, whom I made defence editor of the Telegraph. And he was in Lebanon, I, having written the face of battle and everything, um, and then went to Lebanon as a to cover a war. Ke Keegan had, had never heard a shot fired in anger. Which is the first word of his book, 
Right. And uh, he, but he managed to write very well about it. Yeah. Uh, but there's no question, and John himself, if he was sitting here, would have said this freely, that his fascination with it was partly influenced by... He, John, I think, had a much more romantic view of war than I did. Yeah. Um, in that, for example, I've known plenty of heroes, people who won lots of decorations. And while many of them are admirable people who are very useful, um, there's a very good line um, by a French um, savant, um, I forget which one, but he said, um, and I won't try my execrable French to quote it in French, but he said, courage is often the best part of he who possesses it. Mm. And I say, I, I was brought up to have an exaggerated respect for courage. I thought um, the highest quality you could have is physical courage. I now understand that moral courage is much more important, much rarer. And again, having studied heroes a lot, military heroes, a lot of them are frightfully stupid. In many ways, pretty awful people. Um, and you need them when there's a war on. And the fact of, but, uh, we, we should move chronologically, but the fact of decoration is also very difficult for people sometimes, right, as well, dealing with... Well, there are the people who win, it's so arbitrary who gets decorations. And you find cases like, for example, H. Jones in the Falklands War. Well, Maggie um, Thatcher wanted a VC. The British Army was very unhappy about the award of a VC to, um, to H. Jones because they felt that what he'd done at Goose Green, although he got himself killed, um, they felt that his actual handling of his battalion on the battlefield had been pretty deplorable. His radio operator um, would have failed Junior Brecken. Well, they were... The, 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 his battalion were... Um, many of his officers were very unhappy with him. But Margaret Thatcher intervened and said flatly, over the heads of the, heads of the army, H. Jones must have a VC, which is what he got. Um, and VCs were often awarded for entirely political reasons for... Yeah. Um, and, um, of course, many of the people who won VCs are very remarkable people who've done very remarkable things. Well, I, I look at this, and it's a bit of a side trick here, but in detail in my book about the, the first one in 2004, mm. and that was clearly a, a, it, the, the battalion involved, the PWRR, fought a battle right from getting the citation onto two pages with Brigade. You know, it was conceived right from the bottom and mm. the language and so forth. But moving, moving back to your, your early career, so you, yeah. you went to Oxford, but only for a year... Yeah, and then went into journalism. Could you talk maybe to an audience that isn't familiar with with how Fleet Street and how journalism worked at that time? What it was like, you know, compared to today, and without without romanticising it, what was good, what was what was less good? It was romantic. Um, I mean, I'd had where I'd been spoiled. I'd worked for some months in my gap year, apart from going to Cyprus for the parish regiment. I'd also spent quite some months working for BBC as a very junior researcher on a series on the First World War. I adored that experience. And really, all the time I was at Oxford, I was yearning to get back to work. I found being effectively back at school in Oxford College wasn't nearly as much fun as working in the real world. So I worked in vacations for the London's Diary of the Evening Standard. And when I'd been there a year, the editor of the Standard then wrote me a letter and he said, um, I think you might have some potential. And if you leave, I'm prepared to offer you a job, or when you leave. And he meant when I left after getting a degree, but I wrote back to him and said, well, if I leave now, will you give me a job? Was that Charles Winter? Yeah. yeah. And uh, Charles Winter, Anna Winter's father, um, gave me a job at what then seemed a princely sum of £30 a week. What would, was, that, what would that be? Again, we always try and ask about money on the show, so what would that be comparable £30 to? £30 a week now would enable you to live in the style you could live now on about 30,000 a year. Okay. That sort of idea in terms of lifestyle. Yeah. One could live, you could live quite nicely on, on 30 pounds a week, 1,500 a year. 
Um, it wasn't that nobody got rich in journalism, but everybody could make a middle-class lifestyle, and yeah. lots of people... Was it a middle-class profession, though, at that time? Was it still... Because wasn't there a, a sort of switchover from a working-class trade? Yeah, that's true. I think one of the worst things that's happening now is that because it's now so badly paid, it's in danger of becoming a middle-class ghetto again. But in those days, people from all sorts of backgrounds, but actually London's diary was terribly middle-class and terribly nepotistic. Mm. And Charles Winter appointed um, the uh, children of, uh, of his friends in a lot of cases. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he knew my parents. And um, Eric Linklater's son, Magnus, and Alan Moorhead's son, Johnny, were working on London's diary with me, and we were all frightfully... Um, gilded lot in this terms is Moorhead who covered the Western Desert and yeah absolutely yeah. Um, um, and um, so we were all a pretty privileged lot mm. um, and we had terrific fun and the great thing you then had on London's diary which was um, you had a chance and I was still only when I left Oxford about 19 or 20 mm. um, I had the the chance you, it was the range of stuff you did one day you'd be taking down a rig to lunch at the Trattoria Terrazza and the next day you'd be going to some West End first night, and then you'd be going to a party conference, and then you'd be going to cover a powerboat race and Cows Week in the Isle of Wight. Mm. And so you were doing a range of stuff. And of course, the paragraphs you write for a gossip column are not, um, uh, this is not Tolstoy and prose. But what you do get, the most priceless thing for anybody, when people say to me, How do I get to be a journalist or what do I want to do? I say, You've got to practice writing. And we were writing a few hundred words every single day. And that was what was so priceless. You've got a huge amount of practice. And also, we were very well edited, uh, sub-edited. And I'm dismayed um, now. I think, I don't think reporters are any worse than they ever were. And I don't think editors are any worse. But sub-editing, because sub-editing costs money, it's been one of the major casualties. And one of the nasty shocks I got when I became an editor was I always assumed that it was our job as writers to submit copy f- uh, in a more or less unready state to be, fit, be put in a paper mm. and I got an horrible shock to discover how many supposed writers, some of them quite distinguished, um, submitted copy requiring hours of, of, of work by all of us to try and get in a state to, to fire. Um, and how did you break through from doing that kind of gossip stuff within five years to be in? Well, it was um, a mixture of luck. I got a fellowship, um, and this was pure luck. When I was 21, I got a fellowship on an American um, foundation to go and spend a year studying in the United States. It was a fellowship for young journalists. And I was, by some distance, the youngest person on the... There were 15 of us, and the average age was about 27, 28, and I was 21. But we travelled all over America... And I was able to do a bit of writing for the standard while I was there. And then when I'd been there a year, it was 1968. And um, Charles Winter, um, if I hadn't done that year, he would never have given me this chance, let me stay in America to report the 68 election. Okay. Um, and one way or another, I mean, one got to, you got to meet all those people. I mean, here I am now writing a book about the Vietnam War. And I went to the White House and... Um, met Lyndon Johnson and uh, um, and what were the actual mechanics of filing in those days was it telex or we were filing everything telex was most of it occasionally a lot of it dictated I remember right. when I reported on the riots in um, in in uh, Chicago 
uh, the race riots after the death of Martin Luther King. And I remember standing in a phone booth with half the buildings burning around one and uh, telephoning to, uh, to London. And, of course, you, you telephone reverse charges. Yeah. Sometimes it's a bit of suspense because the money on telephone calls in those days was important. And there was always that bit of suspense whether the, the operator at the other end was going to remember who you were and accept the call. Um, and, of course, there was no mobile phones. Yeah. And all the time, everything you did as a young reporter abroad was dictated by communications. You could have the greatest story in the world, but it meant nothing mm. unless you had the means of, of transmitting it. And I sometimes had to go to fantastic lengths, not to get a story, but to find somewhere to file it from. Yeah. But after America, I came back to America, I read a very bad book, as bad as you expect, well, I was 22, about America in those days, which at least got a publisher in London and in New York. And uh, then I did a lot of stuff for the standard. I went to Biafra for Charles let me go to Biafra and war. Where uh, Freddie Forsyth was as well. He, well, he just left. He'd been in, um, Freddie had been in Biafra and he, he'd already left Biafra at the time. I, I was there at the tail end of it. Right. And then I did a lot in Northern Ireland, wrote another bad book about it. Um, but When you I, talk about the, you know, these books being bad as, as juvenile, what do you think are the mistakes that young writers make with their first books? Well, one is pretty crass. In, um, I remember the Sunday Times reviewer of my book on America. He said, most, if not all, the virtues of this book derived from the author's youth and innocence. Right. Uh, not many of us, when we're 21 or 22, our views are pretty callow. Yeah. Um, but it is practice. What, what both writing those two early books did, I think one probably got to write some bad books in order to discover how to write a half-decent one, because... Yeah. Um, it's always this business of the practice. And I look back, I'm always trying to keep out of the hands of anybody who might take me seriously. Um, the books about American, not so much Northern Ireland, Northern Ireland is a bit better, but they reflected the fact one was green and passionate and, yeah. and we knew nothing. Yeah. And um, you look back and, and, uh, and, and yes, one was innocent. But on the other hand, there are some virtues in innocence in that... Um, I do think that I never forgot one thing that Robin Day, the great BBC interviewer, once said to me. And I was gossiping to him one day at a party conference. And Robin said to me, he said, even when I'm giving a prime minister a hard time um, on television, he said, I always try never, for to, never to forget that politicians are trying to do something very difficult, which mm. is govern the country. And I still believe that it's right to give every incoming Prime Minister the benefit of the doubt. And it's also interesting, I suppose, if one compares to the military sphere, that particularly during the, you know, the general wars of the 20th century, people took vast responsibility at a very young age, right? If you look at you know, the age that um, average battalion commander on the Western Front in the First World War, what, 28 or something, and then you know, the, the man who led the dam bus is 24. Well, you have so, to yeah. be. You, you, of course one is going to be judgmental, but yeah, what, what I think is also very important it's always to look at context, not only of their personal context, but to look at the context of the time yeah. and not to judge and to say, well, here's what we think in the 21st century, but here's how it looked then. I mean, I get awfully fed up with people who bang on about the strategic bombing in the Second World War as an atrocity. Right. In that I wrote a book, that I, a very critical book about bombing in the Second World War, which in fact got me into a lot of trouble with all the RAF veterans of that time. Yeah. But I would never have called it an atrocity because um, it was 
the bombing was done for very understandable reasons in a situation when Britain had its back to the wall in 1940-41 and when Churchill and nobody else could think of any other way to take on the Germans. And a lot of the very bad books that are written today and very judgmental books about bombing, they seem to me to just ignore the context. And all the time, I mean, the book I've just written about Vietnam, of course Vietnam was a disaster and reflected appalling errors on the part of uh, America's leaders. But the, what one has to remember is in the late 50s and early 60s, there was a Cold War and there was a communist threat. The mm-hmm. communist threat was something very real. And it's very hard for people today to get their minds around just how real it was. But there it was. And communist expansionism was, was not a figment of um, a, a load of American paranoics imagination. And at the time that you're, you know, you're, you're building your foreign correspondency career, you're doing these early books, how are your interests and your ambitions evolving? Are you thinking at that stage that you, you want to be a writer with a capital W? Or? You can never imagine, you can never, unless you're Oscar Wilde and you're convinced you're a genius from mm. the cradle, most of us, you get through one thing at a time. I mean, I won some modest prizes. I mean, getting this fellowship in America was a big thing for me when I was 21. Yeah. Um, then... Um, when I, I got a, a modest uh, journalism prize when I did the um, uh, report of the 73 uh, Middle East War. Mm. Um, I'm trying to call, when Nicholas uh, Tomlin was killed. At the Yom Kippur yeah. War, and then I was about, I don't know, 28 or something. Um, so one thing, you go one step at a time. Um, I think one of the most important things is that some people should believe in you, um, even if it's only your parents, mm. that... Um, it, 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 it makes a huge difference and various people, I was lucky enough, Charles Winter was my great mentor, Charles thought that, um, that I had potential to be um, something good and it made a huge difference to me. Um, but of course there's huge jealousy, I mean a lot of people on the Evening Standard um, hated my guts because I was sent on all these foreign assignments. And yeah. um, there I was, twenty something, and and there were rumours that my mother was Charles's mistress, right? Um, because people wanted to believe that uh, there had to be some sinister reason why Charles was giving me age something or other um, all these wonderful jobs. But Charles also editors then they did have um, fantastic um, uh, because the money was there. Not not that Evening Standard was never rich, but nonetheless there was enough money to be able to do remarkable things. Did it have a network of foreign bureaus? No. It had it well it had a Paris correspondent, because Paris seemed important then. Yeah. And it had two people in America, right. which was then a lot. But it did not have uh, it had a lot of stringers in various places. Yeah. But it was a big deal. Um, I mean we tended when when I became an editor, we were managing to send quite a lot of people on foreign assignments, club class. Whereas nowadays, as um, a foreign correspondent said to me the other day, he said, you expect to fly tied to the tail yeah. uh, because um, there isn't the money. Uh, but I mean, I remember, for example, when I begged Charles to be allowed to go to Biafra and he had to take an hour to check with the money people whether they could afford my airfare to, uh, to Nigeria. Right. Um, because this was... Airfares in those days were a significant sum of money. They were yeah. a much bigger item. And communications costs, the bills that, that one ran up for telex, for, these were really significant sums of money. Yeah. Communications and airfares are today much cheaper than they were yeah. then. Um, all the other costs have, have soared. 
And where, um, did, where did the interest, when you, when you wrote Bomber Command, and in writing, you'd written two kind of reporting-based books, mm. the interest in moving to write about the Second World War, where had that come from? It was pure chance that um, one day I was doing a job actually with Charles in New York. I went over to cover the, um, um, the American Bicentennial, mm. and this is 76. And I was having a drink with my American agent and a publisher called Jim Wade. And he said, nobody's ever done the story of Bomber Command. He pronounced it Command right. And Had Len Dayton written Bomber? He'd written he Bomber, but that was fiction, of course. Yeah. And I came home and I thought about it. And uh, I thought maybe he had a point that nobody had done the sort of book I, I thought I could write. And I was lucky. I got two very good contracts. Um, and... I got, and Jim Wade in New York gave me a contract. And we had, I think, I forgot how much money was involved. I think I got contracts for about £20,000, which in those days... Yeah, how much, money. again, what would that mean? Oh, today? God, I mean, that would be the equivalent of 150000 now. Okay. This is about 1976 or seven. And did you take time off the... Yeah, yeah. I, I jacked in my job at the Standard. And everybody thought I was very silly. Um, because although £20,000 then seemed a fortune to me, I then had a, uh, I was married and I had a young son and all yeah. the rest of it. And How old were you at this point? 30 odd. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was 30. 30 um, and, um, but I felt if I couldn't do this unless I went off to, um, got out of the game. In those days, Ireland had a deal where writers could live tax free. Okay. And also, my then wife um, was very keen on fox hunting. Right. And I liked the country life. And I thought I'd make a complete break. So we sold our house in London and um, we went off to Ireland for a couple of years. And I was always grateful for that because although financially it wasn't a great success because, in fact, the London property market rose so much that if I'd stayed with what I was doing, I'd probably made more money than I made out of Bomber Command. But it gave me a break from journalism. And did you feel that was important? I mean, it's interesting if you look at... You know, in America, writers like Tom Wolfe, who became Tom Wolfe because of the New York newspaper strike, right? And he lost his job and he had to go and do his things. Or Gay Talese, who worked at the New York Times for 10 years and then had to leave to kind of, it moved to the next level. Did you feel that you needed, you'd, you'd gain these skills and experience doing daily journalism, but had to I felt beyond? I felt that unless I left and made a break of some kind, um, I was just going to remain a reporter, hopefully not a bad reporter, making a perfectly good living. Yeah. But I, I thought if I wanted to move up a notch career-wise, I was going to have to do something bold. But um, the real one one has to accept always is there's nothing inevitable that all this stuff turns out right. In that when I look back, I mean, one was frequently, I had a huge overdraft until I, was, until I became editor of the Telegraph. Really? And even then, the last two years before I became editor of the Telegraph, I did make a lot of money. I made, I can remember, I made... T- 200,000 a year in both 1984 and 85. So what would that mean now? Most of that was from a Falklands, Falklands okay. war book. Which was with Simon Jenkins. Right? A load of other stuff. But one and again, what would 200,000 a year mean in today's money? A lot. I mean, I forgot. I wouldn't even care to put a number on it, but it was yeah. a, a multiple of where we are now. Yeah. This is 1984 and 5. But the, the result of that was that, in fact, I remember my salary when I was asked, but my first year, when I was when I became editor of the Telegraph, I was paid seventy five thousand. Okay. And um, that meant that I was actually taking quite a hefty pay cut 
yeah. to become an editor. I felt that it was something sufficiently exciting that I had to do it. Well, I, but I, I, various people, including my then wife, said, you're mad. She really? said, you're, you're proposing to cut your income in half. Well, I, I've got a question on, on Bomber Command, which is almost a, a sort of structural, a stylistic question. And I, I looked at that when I was writing my book proposal. Yeah. And again, when my book was at proposal stage, there was an idea that it would have splits between narrative prose and then analytical prose, which I think is what you do in Bomber Command. That the sections, there's that bit that opens at the beginning with the, you know, that it's like a pre-war flying club and then everyone dies. And then there's a move to kind of analysis of pre-war air policy and so forth. But you don't do that with your later work. It varies. Or it varies from book to book. Um, um, it varies from book to book. I do it quite a lot. One always blending the human interest anecdotes with the... I mean, the nature of military history, so-called. I mean, I don't think these days one really writes military history, you just write history. Mm -hmm. Because military history used to be the 56th Division went this way and the 54th Division went that way. Generally, um, these days, what one realises, people are interested in human experience. They're interested in what happened to people. And that's what one is all the time trying to do. And the big change for me um, in writing about wars is that when I started out, I used to think... It was all about generals and soldiers. Yeah. And I now realise, first of all, soldiers, the people who fight wars and shoot people, are in many ways the least interesting because the gifts you need to be a good soldier are those of the, the, the sports field. I mean, you've got to be reasonably fit, you've got to be reasonably gung-ho and so on and so forth, but you don't need a brain at all. And um, an awful lot of people get caught up in wars, especially as victims, yeah. and especially women, which when I started writing, I hardly thought about at all. But I now think about enormous... enormous and many, I found it, yeah, in my work, in many ways their views are the most interesting, right? Because they're, they're adjacent but separate to... Well, it's, it's, I, I find the whole... that One is, although I think the whole victim thing can be overdone as a society, we overdo the victim thing today, um, the way that people like me and, and Andy Bieber and, and some others write about wars these days... We're writing about it a completely different way from the way that people used to write about wars when we were kids, yeah. because the whole focus has shifted, and I'm far less interested in the strategy and uh, um, how everybody captured Rome and so on and so forth than I am in just what it was like to in the human experience, and also in the political decision making. Um, but you, but nothing's inevitable. The point is, you find out things as they go along. And there were various stages of which I could have gone bankrupt um, if I hadn't been lucky, yeah. because one was on the edge of a precipice financially, and one was living at a fairly high standard of living. And, um, and it was only, you know, now it all looks, because it all worked well for me, mm. it's easy to say, this is how it was always going to be. But plenty of people prophesied disaster for me, financial or otherwise, because my mother thought I'd get myself killed because she just thought if I went on going to wars. Mm. And when I became editor of the Telegraph, it made me laugh. Oh, sorry, editor of the Evening Standard. Um, it made me laugh. Um, somebody stuck on my desk for fun, my old personal files the Telegraph. One of the things I found in it was a letter from my mother to Charles Winter begging him to stop me going to wars, because she thought I was going to get killed sooner or later doing it. So were you freelance from the time that you left to go and write Bombardment? I, I was never on the staff again yeah. uh, after that. I worked for the Evening Standard at the time, but I was always on contracts. Yeah. And I never I never sort of had a regular job where I sat in the newspaper office after that. Um, 
And where did the Falklands? I mean, it's you know your experience there is so signal. I, I don't want to get lost in that. Yeah. But in terms of you know, where you sat as a writer, your, your kind of level of, of prominence, the kind of work you could get, did that play a big role? The Falklands experience. The Falklands was decisive, but again, you only know now. Yeah. Where the one good decision I've done lots of things where I was just lucky or where I was. But if I claim credit for one thing, it would be having seen the potential of Falklands when nobody else I knew did. In that, at the time of the Falklands, I was not on anybody's staff at all. And I was writing a bit for the Evening Standard, but mostly I was writing a book on the Normandy campaign. I was sitting at home in the country, and suddenly we hear about this thing. I didn't even hear about it. A friend of mine rang me up and told me this was happening because I was sitting on the typewriter um, writing about Normandy. And the moment I heard this, and I heard that we were sending a task force, I thought, I've got to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and all my old friends whom I'd known on the road in Vietnam or the Middle East rang me up and they all teased me and they said, we've heard you're going there. And I had quite a lot of trouble persuading everyone to take me because, first of all, it was a big row, the Evening Standard. The people on the staff of the Evening Standard wanted them to go and they were yeah. furious that the editor agreed that I should go as their... And I had to persuade the editor of the Evening Standard to let me go as their guy... Then we had to persuade, um, I had to ring up Downing Street, Bernard Ingham, Thatcher's uh, um, uh, press secretary, and persuade yeah. him to find a place for me, because at that time they were only taking about 15 journalists. Um, and then all my friends rang up and teased me, and they said, Max, there isn't going to be a war. It's kind of a real war in the year of our Lord, 1982, over this stupid bit of peat in the middle of nowhere. All you'll do is sail around in circles around the South Atlantic and you'll come back having done nothing. And I said, I agree. And I took all my research stuff for um, uh, the Normandy book with me. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Because I thought it quite likely that's what would happen. And I just was determined to do some work on the boat. But on the other hand, I said there is a one in five chance there'll be a war. If there's a war, then it's a big chance for me. And the critical break for me or two critical breaks. Um, Everybody in Fleet Street sent their B team Mm -hmm. to cover the war because nobody, none of the big stars wanted to go. Because what always happens with big international stories is usually when things started, or this was certainly true in the old days, you send anybody you happen to have around from the news desk Mm. to do it, to put down a marker for a bit. And then if the whole thing gets serious, you send your stars. What nobody betted on was the fact that the Ministry of Defence would refuse to let them set the stars, that the only chance to, when it became pain, was likely to be a war, they could have flown some people down to Ascension, and they wouldn't allow them to do that, because they didn't want any more journalists. And all the Fleet Street people went mad when they were told they couldn't set their stars, and by that time all the people like Don McCullough and all the rest of it were panting to go. And this story, this particular story I'd heard, and I, I wanted to know if this was apocryphal, was yeah. when you get into Stanley, yeah. that, that I've read somewhere that you were set, given everyone's copy to file, but yeah. only filed your own. Is that, is that correct? It is not true, no. Okay, what is the, um, what is the correct version of that? Um, uh, well, I'll just go back one step, okay. away before I come to that yeah. one. That the other thing that was frightfully important for me, I was representing the Evening Standard, which was, although it was a quite important paper. It was still only a little thing. But then, and I kicked up hell when they announced that all copy would be pooled. Mm-hmm. But, in fact, pooling copy was um, 
the best thing that ever happened to me because it meant that everything one wrote appeared in every newspaper. Right. If my stuff had only appeared in the Evening Standard, I doubt I would have got half as much out of the thing. As far as the story went, um, there were a lot of very... You know, as always, when you get a story like that, there's always going to be a lot of jealousy. Mm. Um, and you've got to expect that. There's rivalry and there's jealousy and so on. Um, and when I came out of Stanley, um, yeah, there were by then two or three other journalists there and they said, will you take our copy? And I did take their copy. Right. Um, and I took it back to ships. However, the one thing I was not prepared to do, and I don't regret having done that, was that I personally, um, telexed, uh, or in those days, it wasn't, yes, it was telexed in those days, I personally telexed my copy, and I gave their or theirs to the, one of the Ministry of Defence minders, and I said, here's everybody else's copy, and I left him to send it. Okay. And he, he didn't send it for some hours. Right. But quite frankly, I refused to regret that. Um, I always remember when I came back um, and I was raging to my agent um, uh, because one of the disgruntled rivals um, said that I'd bribed the Royal Marine officer to suppress all their copy. Right. And um, I said to my agent, I will sue them for their last penny. Um, and Michael Sisson said, um, he said, Max, you'd better get your mind around the fact you're not the most popular boy in town at this moment. Um, and in the coming weeks, an awful lot of mud is going to get thrown. And he said, the great principle is, if mud deserves to stick, it will. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't, it won't. But the only thing that's for sure is, uh, if you start suing people, it will stick. And actually, I never grudged Michael his 10% then, and I never have since. Um, because he was right. And even now... I've never sued private eye, although private eye have run all sorts of garbage about me over many years. Yeah. It never occurred to me to sue them. Right. Because um, he, Michael was absolutely right. If mud deserves to stick, it will. And if it doesn't, it won't. But actually suing people is stupid. You know, and moving, moving back to the book writing, particularly the World War II book writing, I'm interested that you know, when you started doing this, very much, you know, it's, it's 30 years later, but people are alive. You can go and talk to, yeah. to people and everything like that. What I find fascinating now about World War II history is, you know, this is, this is almost now left living memory and so forth. How has the, the practice of what you're doing evolved from, from that time in the 70s when it, was, when it was living memory to now when it's a, an archival or a... In the West, we're incredibly lucky because in Britain and America, in the last... Uh, 30, 40 years, a huge amount of superb oral history work has been done. Mm. Um, so that um, you get, when I've been writing this book on Vietnam, I find there are fabulous oral history transcripts in the US Army War College uh, archive at Carlisle and the US Marine Corps and so on and so forth. And even though these people, a lot of them are dead, yeah. um, the stories are there, and it's fantastic. It's much. What is much sadder is that when I was writing about the Chinese and the Japanese and this, that, you know, they don't have any of that sort of stuff from the Russians. And the people I interviewed for those books, they're gone. Um, and there isn't, you don't have that record. And I was very privileged to be able to do the interviewing. Um, and there is no substitute I mean, for the Vietnam book, I interviewed a lot well, of Well, was it with the Vietnam book? Was it a bit like going back in time? I've, I've interviewed was... a lot of the Vietnamese, both in California and in Vietnam. And um, 
there again, there's no written record comparable with, um, um, but you do get, um, I find one of the things, although I'm now getting jolly old for doing this, I never, I think, this, the most, the most, the essential quality of a journalist, or two qualities. One is you've got to like making trouble, mm. and the second is you've got to be perpetually curious. And I find that even at my stage, when I sit in some um, crappy little bungalow in South Carolina, listening to some old guy talking about things that happen, I'm still absolutely rooted. Yeah. And I mean, what I found what I found fascinating in the work I've been doing is that you know it's not journalism. It's ten, twelve years ago now that you're writing, and so there's an openness to talk. But almost everyone's still alive. So if you want to know, you know where they are, you might have to find them. But it, that is extraordinary. The other thing I was interested in is, by the way, one caveat I think is important to enter. I would never trust any book that was founded entirely on oral history because um, I think. Um, my old friend Hugh Strawn, um, in my view, ever does it. Hugh said he would never use oral evidence, and I think he's, that's, he's wrong about that. Yeah. Because um, I think oral evidence can give you a grounds, sense... On what grounds would he... Because he said it's completely untrustworthy and subjective. Right. And what is certainly true is a lot of people's memories play them false. Yeah. And um, they get a lot of stuff wrong. But it gives you a terrific sense of period and place and so on and so forth. I would never trust purely oral evidence about something factual. Yeah. Um, but oral evidence is absolutely fascinating about how people felt and how they... Um, I mean, the revelation to me, when I started going around interviewing for people bomb command, and again, all these people stood around and in only middle-aged, and I was able to interview all of them. And the shock when some gunner told me that he'd hated Guy Gibson the idol of my childhood, really? because he said he was a little bugger who was always jumping out from behind the hut and telling you your buttons were undone. Yeah, his ground crew hated him, right? Didn't they call they, him They were crew? all, they were, they were, and this, comp- I would never have found that written down anywhere. Yeah. I had to, um, that had to come from, so. And it also, getting, getting that stuff requires a different <laughs> skill set, right? It requires a reporting skill set, which isn't, within the academic realm. I suppose the, the extension of that is the whole historiographical piece about, you know, there's, there's the war and then there's the war about what the war meant and how it was fought. How did you, I mean, do you, do you, are there incentives as a historian to, to turn up, to turn over the apple cart, to say received wisdom? Oh, yeah. yeah. It's very easy to, um, I hope I've never played, the, played that game, but as I always say the two things. Um, when I'm talking to students, I say, if ever you see that a book claims on the jacket to be the definitive history or the definitive biography, it's right straight in the middle, mm. because there's no such thing as definitive. We're all stabbing yeah. at elements of the truth. Um, and um, as soon as you see, here is the story um, about the event that changed World War Two or something, this is all a lot of bollocks. In the, I mean, I'm, I'm not a romantic. I mean, I, I'm... I'm there are one or two writers whom I love as people, but I think they romanticise the war, and especially the intelligence war, yeah. because the most, one of the most important things that Winston Churchill ever wrote, which I've quoted again and again, when um, Portal, as chief of the air staff, wrote um, to him in 1941 and said that if Churchill would authorise a construction programme for bombers that would create 4,000 bombers. He, Portal, would win the war. Right. 
And Churchill wrote him back a superlative memo. And this is 1941, when things were pretty bad, yeah. uh, which I quoted in Bon Command, and I've quoted in other places since, because he's saying something terribly important about war. He said, I deplore placing unlimited confidence in any one means of winning the war. He said, all things are always on the move simultaneously. Yeah. And then he went on to say, um, uh, we all have great hopes. I'm now paraphrasing a bit, whereas previously I was quoting verbatim. Um, he said, we all have great hopes for what bombing Germany may achieve. But he said, um, it is also overwhelmingly likely that we shall need to land large armoured forces on the continent, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But this phrase, all things are always on the move at once. So anybody who writes a book saying this event or that event or that event, completely... And there's, I suppose, the technological determinism piece yeah, for it as well. this is also yeah. frightfully important. And um, you have to um, um, recognise, in peace or in war, all things are always on the move at once. Um, but going back just briefly on the oral history point, one thing that's very important, um, when I meet veterans of the Falklands, mm. and the Falklands was a big event to me, probably the most thrilling adventure in my life, and we start talking, and I find my memory plays as false as anybody's, yeah. that I get things completely in the wrong order, and I forget things that happen. Um, not because one is willfully, but because this is what happens to us all. So that's why you have to treat oral evidence with, with caution, because <clears throat> I'm sometimes embarrassed by how wrong your memory can be of what you did or didn't do, or where you did or didn't And how go. has your, again we asked this to Anthony Beaver, but how has your interaction with academic history as a discipline mm -hmm. worked? Is there, is there an envy piece there as well? There's always jealousy. Um, journalists will always envy academics their respectability, mm. and academics will always envy journalists the money. Yeah. And, you know, Anthony Beaver and I, make far, far more money out of our book sales than they all ever dream of. Yeah. And not surprisingly, some of them are pretty sore about it. Um, but you, there's a, I came across in Anthony Pearl's Commonplace, the book the other day, I came across a line which made me laugh. He said, one never ceases to be surprised one's contemporaries um, will forgive one almost anything except a moderate degree of success. Um, but... The, I said, the only thing one can ever say in one's own defence, it was not necessarily bound to be that way. Yeah. A, one could have been blown up or shot, as quite a few friends of mine were, um, in all those innumerable wars. Secondly, I could have easily gone bust from because things didn't work out that when, way. On the financial side, when did it become secure? Because you worked at the Telegraph for a decade. I, was, I only stopped having an overdraft because I was educating three children in private education. Right. So even though... And do remember, tax was still 60% um, plus when I was... Um, so even though the last two years before I became a... I was making good money, I still had an overdraft. And the only thing that got me out of it, Andrew Knight gave me share options in the Daily Telegraph. Okay. Which I'd never even heard of a share option yeah. when I took the job on. Um, but in fact, they enabled me to make a very large sum of money. Okay. And for the first time in my life, you know, one paid off the mortgage and you, for the first time one was on the right side of the ledger and pray God one will stay there. Um, but I was probably 41 before that happened. Yeah. And how so, did the sales of your books, which was your first, you know, <laughs> which were the, did it, was it a consistent rise or oh, was yeah. there a breakthrough? It was, well, you had one or two disappointments. Um, the Falklands was the first biggie. Yeah. 
and Hawkins book, we sold 130 something thousand in hardback. Which is with Simon Jenkins. Yeah. yeah. Um, and um, that was. How had Bomber Command done? I couldn't tell you from memory. Yeah. I, don't, I try never to invent figures because I don't nothing remotely like that. Sure. Um, the next time I broke 100,000 in hardback was, would have been with, um, I mean, the other books like Normandy and all the rest of it sell well, yeah. but they didn't sell. But um, all hell let loose, we sold, I think, 145 in hardback. Okay. Um, but I start getting a bit shaky on the numbers, in, uh, and then also you start getting really good foreign sales. And a point, a point um, that Anthony Beaver mentioned again was the, the potential peril of large advances. That he said, you know, that he feels that that, although it, it, it's very flattering if a publisher put a lot of money up, there's always the risk that you don't make it out. It's or, a very good principle in life, which I've always tried to stick with. If people pay you silly money, they're going to ask you to do silly things. Yeah. Um, I've always liked. Um, to have arrangements with employers whereby you're not paid stupid, you want to be well paid, mm. you not be paid stupid money because if you're paid stupid money, yeah. Um, where I agree with Anthony, um, when I was 21 and I wrote my first the American book mm. and I was taken out to lunch by the then Dean of London Agents, who was my first agent, a guy called Graham Watson. and. Graham offered me two pieces of magisterial advice. He said, first, um, he said, um, if you're going to be a career writer, um, don't think it's clever to write um, one book on the history of the American Civil War and another one on old-fashioned roses. Try and uh, build up a reputation for creating a certain kind of book so that somebody who buys a book with your name on knows what they're going to get. And secondly, he said, um, if you're going to just write one book about rowing the Atlantic backwards, screw the publishers for every penny you can get in advances um, and run laughing to the bank. But if you want to make a living as a writer, then the best reputation you can have is your books earn up. Yeah. And I've stuck with that. And in fact, I've often said to my assistants when he said, I think I can get another these days 100,000. And I said, forget it. Um, uh, I said, at this minute, you know, one solvent and you don't need the... Whereas when I was younger, I hastened to add for a long time. Yeah. One damn well did need every penny. Is it, can, it so. be, can it be constricting, though, that almost the tyranny of success to feel... I, I see that point about maintaining brand, as it were, for one of a better stage. But, you know, is there... Would you some, Do you have an interest in doing something completely different? No, because I, I know what I can do. Yeah. And, I, and I'm... If you want, that makes me a hack. I mean, I greatly admire... Uh, Robert Harris is a great friend of mine. Yeah. And when Robert told me he was going to write a book about ancient Rome, I said, you're bonkers. I said, you established a terrific brand, writing books like Archangel and uh, Fatherland, and, and you're brilliant about Second World War, about this, that, and the other. Why do you want to fuck about with, yeah. with, um, uh, with ancient Rome? And, of course, I felt, I didn't say so to him, but I thought the same when he wrote his book about Dreyfus. Yeah. And of course, I was totally, utterly wrong. And one of the many things that makes me admire Robert so much is that he's completely original in that every time he does a book, he wants to push the frontier a bit further. Yeah. And his originality is, is terrific. Um, I'm trying to do something different. I'm, uh, I'm um, a professional writer. 
um, I want to make a living out of all this stuff. Um, and I know the market I'm writing in, and I know what I'm, uh, and I don't think, I, I mean, I don't think I could ever write a novel, and if I did, it would be a terrible novel. Um, and I won't ever do another book as ambitious as Vietnam. Vietnam's been a huge, because I yeah. found one's absolutely exhausted after writing it. And... Um, can, I, can I ask on process? I mean, your, your, your output is prolific. And what are your methods for, for marshalling source material and for actually, you know, actually the business of, of putting the thing together? Do you, do you have a team? Do you work with researchers? No, well, you have a team insofar as Anthony introduced me to his Russian right. researcher who has done a lot of work for me. Yeah. And who wasn't a journalist, right? She had Luba, a PhD. No, no. Yeah. Luba has done fabulous work for me as well as for Anthony. Yeah. And in fact, she's done some terrific work. For example, she had an inspiration over Vietnam that to this day I couldn't fly into Moscow and go and interview people who'd um, served with um, Russian missile batteries in North Vietnam during the war. Luba worked out, she said, ah, but she said there are a lot of people who live in Ukraine okay. who were in the Red Army. Why couldn't things. you go to Moscow? They wouldn't let because you Because they wouldn't, they wouldn't let you, wouldn't be able to talk. Yeah. Me as a writer, you know, my books like Anthony's are banned in Russia and, right. and you can't. You can't do it. Um, so, um, but um, anyway, Luba worked out there would be people in Ukraine, and we got some fabulous interviews in Ukraine with Russian people who'd served in Russian missile crews, um, which gave a terrific dimension. Um, but no, I do all the, there's one thing you learn you can send a researcher to research something if you know what you're looking for. Mm. But normally, when you go into an archive, you have the faintest idea what you're going to find. Yeah. And therefore, um, I thought at the beginning of Vietnam, I thought I'm knocking 70, um, shall I hire some young thing to go off and do the research for me? And then I thought, no, I've got to do it myself. Because another dimension too, doing all these interviews in America, because I was there, and I'm roughly the same age as a lot of the people I was interviewing, mm. they can relate to me yeah. in a way that they'd find much harder to relate. I know the places they're talking about, and I know the things they're talking about. Um, and it's, um, but I wouldn't ever do another book of that complexity, because, but what you do, you, you just, you mass all this stuff. Um, that the, the computer has made things incomparably easier, mm. that to be able to manipulate text on a screen is a million times easier than it used to be, working with it. Do you record interviews? Or do you... No, I'll tell you why not. Because I'm not saying it's wrong to record it, I'll yeah. tell you why I don't. Because when I'm normally on the road, I'm maybe doing three interviews a day, of three or four hours each, and you get terribly tired. Mm. And if the recorder's running, you're in danger of not listening properly. Yes. And also, um, uh, sometimes, if you do a three or four hour interview, you've got to listen to the whole bloody thing. Yeah. I find when I'm just, A, if I'm writing it all down, it makes me listen more carefully to what they're saying. Sure. And secondly, I know pretty accurately from the first minute what, whether, whether they're likely to use something they say or not. Um, and so what, I write it all down and then that night I transcribe that day's interviews onto the laptop. Okay. Do um, you have shorthand? No. Okay. In fact, I've never either learned to type with ten fingers or to um, do shorthand. Yeah. Um, but um, 
But actually, one of the things that makes you, because you fall in love with your material, we all do. I mean, I've still got, um, after finishing Vietnam, I've got 100,000 words of unused interviews. And it okay. breaks my heart because um, some of these interviews are really great. Yeah. But it's just, you know. Will you give them anywhere? Do you have, will you file them or will they go to a museum? or anything? What I'm now going to probably do is, um, which I haven't done before, but I think I'm going to do this book, is I'm just going to put them on my website. Right. Um, which I haven't bothered to do before, but I think I probably will do, um, because you slightly feel you owe it to the people you did the interviews with, who gave you all the time, and you think they're going to be in the book and actually aren't. But, and with, uh, with Anthony Beaver, how does your, you know, you, you and him are the sort of two most prominent practitioners mm -hmm. of the genre, how does your relationship, where do, you, where do you know him from? And so I don't know, I've known him a long time, and I think also, I didn't really know him until he wrote Stalingrad, mm -hmm. and I gave... I sat up when he wrote Stalingrad. If I'm strictly truthful, I hadn't. I thought he'd written some OK books before that. He did one on Crete, which yeah, was. Which heard, yeah. But um, when I read Stalingrad, I thought this is really in a completely different dimension. I thought for what was, reason? I just thought it was the most vivid account of what had happened, and the most, one of the most important books <coughs> about the Eastern Front. I read for ages, and A, I gave it a rave review in the Evening Standard, which I was then editing. And B, I um, have ever since spent a lot more time with Anthony, and we and we found we got on terribly well. And also, again, it's are you rivals? I mean, how does that relationship work? Well, we're sort of um, we're reasonably truthful with each other about our international sales. <laughs> Anthony's global sales are bigger than mine. Um, okay, and I have a nagging envy that I do better than him in America, for instance, but he does better than me in lots of other markets, and I'm always rather niggle than right. Scandinavia, for instance, he does much better than me. But to put it bluntly, at the stage, given we're much the same age, yeah. if one of us was starving, I should think we probably couldn't be friends in the yeah. same way. Right. But because we're both perfectly okay, yeah. um, then you, know, you, you don't feel on either side any need for jealousy or for... Um, um, and have you stayed with the same publishers? How is that? I'd like to have done, but you can't anymore now. It's not, I mean, I've been with HarperCollins and I hope to stay with them for a good while. Yeah. But in the old days, you might reasonably hope to stay with a publisher from birth, from Cradle to Grave. Yeah. But the people at the publishers changed so much. Um, you tend, I mean, I had um, four or five books published by Michael Jesu. And um, then uh, I remember there was a woman running Michael Jesu who she wanted another big book I was writing, but wouldn't take. I felt, just for a bit of fun, I wanted to write a small book about the countryside. Mm. And she said, well, of course we want your big book, and we'll pay you a lot of money for it. But uh, no, we don't want to be bothered with your countryside book. And then I thought, right, you feel like that, I'll go somewhere else, which I duly did. Um, and then sometimes you go, because you felt another publisher I was with for a while, I moved on from, because although they actually offered me more money than... Harper Collins for um, one of my books. Um, they made such a mess of the illustrations in the previous one that I, I felt I wanted to move on. So you, you haven't worked consistently with the same editor? Do you have? I have at, at, at Harper Collins. I have a very happy relationship with the. Um, but they often move. I mean, in America, um, I often found that I moved to a given publisher, and then damn you, the editor for which for whom you've moved moves on. Um, but the point is, it's. I mean, I'm speaking now from the reasonably comfortable position of being 72 years old and having enough money. 
Um, but I do keep stressing, um, until I was 40, one was perpetually, and my daughter said to me recently, because she's now 40, and I said, to, you know, apropos her and her husband, she said, Nick and I spend a lot of time talking about money. And I said, well, get real. You know, this is what the middle classes do. Yeah. And the whole point is there's not a day of my life when I'm not on my knees being grateful that things have turned out so well, because it could have been different. I could name you a string of writers who write quite as well as I do, but haven't had the breaks and haven't had the same luck, and who make a fraction of my income. Um, and it's, of course, there's an element of luck in it and an element of... Um, but also, I think some people, one respect in which I am ruth absolutely ruthless, I'm writing for the market. I'm doing this to make a living. And I do know some writers who write the books they want to write, regardless of the market. And then they're slightly surprised when they find that actually the income they get from them is... is um, um, and some of them are very good writers. But in that respect, I'm a hard man. I'm not going to put pen to paper unless I think somebody's going to pay me quite well to read it. Well, I think that's... We should, we're should we pushing an hour, which is our limit. But look, I yeah. think that's a good place to stop. So okay, thank you very fine. much indeed. Uh, well, I'm not. I'm, a lot of people would think find what I was saying. A lot of people are more principled than than me. If you if you if you might put it that way, would be horrified by my attitude. And I'm not saying mine is either the only or the best way to conduct a career as a writer. The world would be a terrible place if all writers were like me. Mm. It's just the only way I know how to do it. Hello again, us here to talk about us. Simon, you first. Uh, me, talking about me. Uh, I have been working on my book, most uh, tedious update, promise, uh, which has been going okay, uh, possibly travelling in 10 days or so. Um, what else? Where? Uh, maybe to Austria to do a piece for the FT, but it's not confirmed yet. Um, yeah, that FT. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Come Confirm. <laughs> the bat signal has been raised. Uh, yeah, so more of the same, but end in sight near. Um, same message as ever. Cassie, what about you? What would your bat signal be? Like a pen? Yeah, projected on the South London sky. <laughs> um, I too have been away, not for work, but for fun. I went to Japan and Hong Kong, and that was brilliant. Um, and I'm now um, back in the shed, back writing. Um, but uh, yeah, just kind of trying to to see the book as as, as my day job um, <laughs> and not let it consume my life. If you have feedback on the podcast, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us at alwaystakenotes.com or you can tweet to us at takenotesalways. This episode of Always Take Notes was produced by Olivia Kralin, Ed Kiernan and Liz Davies. Music was by Jess Danheiser. And we've been your hosts, Simon Acom and Cassia Sinclair. Thank you so much for joining us and we can't wait to have you back with us next time.